<laughs> yep, it's a kingdom that's coming. So Jacob says it's a kingdom that's coming that's going to trump or triumph over all other kingdoms. Therefore, we need to repent and be in God's kingdom. Otherwise, we'll be thrust out with the kingdoms that are thrust out. So, and as a reminder from last week, that's taken from Daniel. That's where that comes from. And it is exceedingly proven in just anywhere that you read in scripture, especially in the New Testament, that the motivation for us to repent actually is the coming judgment of God. So a lot of people will take verses like Romans 2 verse 4, which says the goodness of God leads men to repentance. And we'll kind of single that out, out of context. This happens all the time. I used to do this too. And use that as like the foundational basis for a theology that if you want people to repent, you have to preach only goodness because the verse says the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But if you actually read the context of that verse, it's actually kind of scary. It's, it doesn't seem to be very much an expression of God's goodness. And it is if you understand the goodness of God properly. So I just wanted to read that verse quick, just so that um, I can include this in the review from last week, since I didn't read this verse last week. But if you go to Romans chapter two and start reading verse four at the top, you'll notice what the goodness of God is really about. Okay. Just going to pull up some notes here before we read that. So Romans 2 verse 4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? So it's not talking about just his goodness, but his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. Why? Keep reading. Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But, verse 5, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. But eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Verse 8, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Okay, so what's important to remember about this is that the forbearance, long-suffering, and goodness of God is talking about his choice, which is a good choice, an expression of his goodness, to delay his judgment until what the Bible calls the day of wrath. So when Romans says the goodness of God leads you to repentance, he's stating that in the context of a warning, which says that judgment is coming and God is so good that he's not judging you now. That's what that verse is trying to say forbearance, waiting it off, long-suffering, being patient with us. This is in connection with 2 Peter 3, which says that he doesn't will that any man should perish, but he's long-suffering. And he wants all to come to repentance. It's talking about how because he wants everyone to come to repentance, he's waiting it out so that there's a greater chance, greater opportunity for people to come to repentance. So that's the goodness of God. Now, in every other place where you see repentance or the need for repentance mentioned, it is always motivated by the expectation of judgment. 
And so I got into this a little bit last, last time, but I'm just going to have you guys write down some references for this in case they weren't written down last week. So if you read Luke 13, 3, I did read this one last week. I'm just going to go over these quickly. Luke chapter 13, verse 3 says, But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So the motivation for repent is if you don't, you'll perish. That's what that verse is saying. 2 Peter 3, 9 through 14. This one I'm going to pull up here real, real fast. 2 Peter 3. I already uh, quoted verse 9 to you. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, but as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. So he states, he wants all of us to come to repentance. Why? Because the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Basically saying everything you see is going to burn up. So why are you serving it? In other words, put all that off and instead choose holy conduct and godliness. And that is what you would do, what you would live in to look for and hasten in the coming of the day of God. Hastening the coming of the day of God is talking about that. It brings it in more quickly or to bring it in quickly. In other words, your conduct and preaching the gospel for that good conduct brings the world to repentance, which actually is what ushers in the day of judgment. That's why Jesus said the end will come when this gospel is preached as a witness to all nations. So that's what that's about. Then if you write down some more verses, Acts 3 verses 19 through 23, I'm not going to read that one, but I just encourage you guys to write that down. Acts 3, 19 through 23, please read these on your own time talks about repentance, being motivated by a coming judgment. Acts 17, verses 30 through 31. This is one of my favorites in the book of Acts. This one I will uh, quote to you guys. This one says, But these past times of ignorance God has overlooked and now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, and he has given assurance to us of this by raising him from the dead. So he says, all your ignorance, which was in your sin, he's overlooked it. He's not holding it against you. Therefore, his grace is available. Repent. Why? Because he's going to judge the world, and you don't want to be the one being judged when he does that. So repent. How do you know that the day of judgment is coming? Because Christ was raised from the dead. And if he was physically raised from the dead, you can expect that he's going to return one day. In a nutshell, or Acts 17, verses 30 through 31, is essentially the gospel of the kingdom in a nutshell. Really good verse to have in your arsenal to memorize, especially if you're going to share the gospel with people. This is just a really good one. So Acts 17, 30 through 31. We read Romans 2, verses 4 through 6. Last one to write down is Revelation 2, verses 21 through 23. Also a verse that teaches that judgment, the expectation of judgment, is supposed to be what? motivates repentance. Revelation 2 verses 21 through 23. So if you look at all those scriptures in tandem and in harmony, 
including Romans 2, we find that the reason why repentance is preached is because of the expectation of judgment. Now, what this means is that if you go and share the gospel with people and you preach the grace and the mercy of God, but you leave out judgment, you leave out what the Bible says inspires and motivates repentance. And we know that Jesus said, if we don't repent, we'll perish. So repentance is essential to the gospel if it's going to be well-rounded and communicated properly. So if all you do is talk about the grace and mercy of God, people will have no expectation to repent, in which case they will not be escaping judgment, which means the gospel that is being taught to them is actually what's keeping them in hell, not delivering them from it. Yes? Sure. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So repentance, this is another good thing to write down if you guys are taking notes so you understand the definition. Number one, the Bible says repentance is granted to us. So Acts 5, I believe it's verse 31 to 32, says that God sent Jesus to give repentance to Israel. And 2 Timothy says we must be granted repentance. Now what this means is that God gives it to his people to enable them to be saved. The definition of repentance is the change of mind. And practically speaking, you would see repentance take place in something as simple as when you're driving down the road and you come to an intersection, you have to decide if you're going to turn right or left. You thought you were going to turn right, and you realized, oh, I need to turn left. So your mind changed and you went the other direction. That's essentially what repentance means. It's, it is the decision or change of mind that results in a turning away of evil behavior to good behavior, or from darkness to light, uh, or from sin to righteousness. So what this doesn't mean is that a person can't be saved until they clean up their life entirely, because repentance is the change of mind. So if a person makes the decision to turn away from the old life, that's what repentance is about. And the way you know whether that repentance is genuine is that their behavior will begin to change and there's going to be steps taken in the direction of their life being sanctified. So when you're telling a person you must repent, for a lot of people that's a Christianese word and they might not understand what that means. So basically what you're saying is God has commanded you to look to him to turn away from your sin and then you can talk about what sin is biblically and to choose to follow his word instead. That would be the message that would cause a person to change their mind and then respond accordingly. So that is what repentance is. Sure. Turn around, go the other way. Yeah. Yep. That's a good way of looking at it as well. Okay. So now that we have that in place, one thing I mentioned last Sunday, just to finish up this review was that the kingdom that's coming is a physical kingdom as well as a spiritual one. The kingdom of God lives in you right now if you're a born-again follower of Jesus, and there's a physical manifestation of it coming one day. And so it's that, that physical nature of the coming kingdom and the judgment that comes with it that inspires repentance. Just like if you had a king that came from a far country with an army that approached the borders of another nation and said, I am going to destroy all of your cities and take your people captive unless you surrender to me pay homage to me, and make your nation my nation. That is the mindset of the Jews when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, because that's what Daniel prophesied would happen, except the kingdom or the king that was coming was the Messiah. So we're actually supposed to be communicating to people 
that the king, the Messiah, is coming with a physical kingdom called the New Jerusalem that he's going to set up on this earth, and it will replace all other kingdoms. So you can't make it into the kingdom of God as patriot of the United States or any nation because the U.S. is going to be replaced with the kingdom of God, as will every other nation. So you're either a citizen of heaven or you're thrust out of heaven, which is not just a place where you go after you die. It's a physical kingdom that actually is going to be here one day. So that is the perspective in which Daniel and Jesus and, and the Jews are preaching and hearing of the kingdom of God. And so that's what motivates repentance. Okay, so that being said, let's get into... Oops, Did I say I was? Oh, well, I'm not anymore. So <laughs> you guys can write down the reference. That was Revelation 2, 21 through 23. Um, you guys can read that on your own time. I'd just like to move on for the sake of, sake of time here. Okay, are there any questions so far before I move on? Okay, good. Thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. Okay, so if we move on here, I would like to ask you all the que a question that I'd like you guys to answer. Again, you can just raise your hand and blurt it out. What, or how do you know, I should say, that a person is saved? In few words, how would you answer that? Their conduct, sure, yeah. Their fruit, yeah. What is the fruit? What fruit would you expect to see? Yeah, love, joy, peace, fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good answers. So if a person professes, you know, I believe in Jesus, I believe that he's the Son of God, died on the cross, rose again for me, and let's say they were baptized. Some people might say, oh, I was confirmed, or I was sprinkled, whatever the context is. They believe, and they've gone through the religious steps, but there isn't fruit in their life to indicate that they've truly committed their lives to Jesus. Are they saved? No. So, does a profession of faith mean anything for a person's salvation? Until what? Until there's fruit, right? Otherwise, it's just words. So, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. Good tree bears good fruit. Bad tree bears bad fruit. So, then where did we get the doctrine that if somebody is going to be born again, they need to say a sinner's prayer, profess the right words, and then we say they're a child of God? Where did that come from? Romans 10, 9, and 10, right? An interpretation of that verse that actually doesn't align with Scripture at all. In fact, if you look at how the apostles and Jesus preached the gospel— they would, yes, preach to people they should believe. They said, yes, confess your sins. Yes, confess Christ before men. Yes, believe on his name. However, they would preach that and then finish their message with, come follow me. They never did an altar call for a sinner's prayer. Never. Doesn't show up once in the Bible. This is not to say that it's wrong for a person to pray to receive Christ. There's nothing biblically wrong with that as long as you're not making that the focal point of your gospel because that's not what saves to Jesus. It was the action that followed the reception of the message that determined whether they were going to be saved or not. And there were some people who did take action, but then stopped and walked away from Christ after a little while. 
which we're going to get into that in more detail later here. But I had to just start with laying down some groundwork, which is that the profession of faith actually has nothing to do with the person being saved unless it's followed by fruit. Okay, so then is believing in Jesus enough to be saved? Based on how most people understand that. No. Believing if you're biblically defining faith saves you, yes. But real faith always has fruit. It always has works that follow it. Right? That's where the Bible says faith without works is dead. James says, show me your faith without your works. In other words, how, how do you have the ability to demonstrate any kind of faith if there's no work involved? And he said, I will show you my faith by my works, and I won't even have to speak a word. My works will show you what I believe, right? So the Bible defends that it's actions, fruit, that actually shows a person's faith. Words have nothing to do with the revelation of a person's faith. As an example, when uh, a few days ago, my wife and I went berry picking, and we met this guy who uh, was right across this, the bushes from us and started a conversation with him, and he was very kind and got to share the gospel with him. We had a conversation for like half an hour. And I asked him, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe this, believe that? And he said, yes, yes, I believe all that. And I took a little bit too much assurance from that than I probably should have. We exchanged contact information, and I expect to talk to him again. And he was a great guy. seemed like he had a beautiful family. It was a really, really good time, really good conversation. But then I went home and prayed about it. And long story short, the Lord showed me that he was kind in his words, but in his heart he did not believe. And I went, if I had stopped with him saying, oh, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then his blood still would have been in my hands because I would not have shared what the Bible actually says about, about what's required to be saved. So they, it kind of woke me up a little bit this moment because I realized that, okay, if I had to be sensitive to the real condition of his heart in the midst of a good profession, then I have to apply that same discipline to every other person that I encounter and actually spending enough time with them to know what the fruit in their life is, whether it's good or bad. Because that's when I'll be able to draw the line where I can decide with good judgment whether they are saved or not. So it is absolutely wrong, just to end this part of the teaching here, it's absolutely wrong for you to make a decision as to whether somebody is saved or not based on what they profess. Really bad decision. Don't do that. <laughs> Unless you know them well enough to know their fruit. Because that's how you can determine whether they're saved or not. Okay? So, just to give you guys a few biblical examples of this. I mentioned this earlier, but John chapter 6 in verse 66 talks about how many who believed in Jesus walked away from him after a little while when he preached a message that a large group of people did not like that offended them. And so they walked away. Were they ever really followers? Probably not. In fact, that same crowd, a few verses earlier, Jesus said, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. He just, just fed the 5,000. And he said, you're basically following me because you like that I gave you food. And he said, don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which I will give you, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. 
He was telling the same crowd that walked away from him a few verses later, you're following me around because you like the miracles that I'm performing that fill your stomachs. So that tells you there's a lot of people who believe for the benefits, in which case it's not actually real faith. So keep that in mind. Be sensitive to that. You'll notice that when you talk to people sometimes. There's another case in Luke chapter 13, verse 24. This one I've been thinking about the past few days. This is also really helped instill a healthy fear of God in me. I'd like to pull this up. Go to Luke chapter 13 and read in verse 24. Let's actually start in verse 22, just to get some context. Luke 13, 22 says, He went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? In other words, they're starting to get a hint at the fact that this is maybe a little harder than we thought it was <laughs> to be in the kingdom, right? So then Jesus affirms his assumption. Verse 24, he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. This is really interesting. Because when you think of people who are seeking God, that's what he's talking about. People who are seeking God. You would think everyone who seeks will find. If somebody's seeking God, their heart's right, they're going to find. But Jesus said there will be many who will seek, but they won't be able to actually enter. And I think that's kind of scary. So even if a person is seeking, doesn't actually mean their heart's right. Yes. Yeah, just to clarify that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So the question is, the previous verse, verse 65 of John 6 says, no, no man can come to me unless it's granted to him by my father. We have to take it at face value. Jesus did say, you can't approach him, come to him and find him unless it's granted to you by the father. So what determines whether it's granted to you by the father or not? If you go all the way back to the beginning of time, actually before time began, Ephesians, Colossians, especially Ephesians, talks about how God knew before the foundation of the world, who would be accepted in the beloved, who would believe, and who would not. And Revelation actually says the names that are written in the book of life are written from the foundation of the world. So God, in his foreknowledge, Romans 8 says, knows who will choose and who will not. So the ones he knows will not choose, he can harden their hearts, like Pharaoh. The people he knows will choose, he can soften them. And no matter how hard we preach the gospel, until we're blue in the face, we will not be able to soften someone who is being hardened by God. Now, a lot of people are like, okay, well, why does God harden people? Again, has to do with his foreknowledge. If a person has made a choice to resist and God knows that they're not ever going to receive the gospel, then just like with Pharaoh, that was the case with Pharaoh, he can harden their heart to capitalize on the decision that they have made and lead it into something that glorifies him. 
regardless of the decision they make. So a lot of people think, oh, I want to live for God's glory. Believer or unbeliever, you will glorify God in the end. Even the people who end up in hell will glorify God. Why? Every knee will bow, yeah, in the end. But the Bible says in Romans 9 that God wanted to make his wrath and his power known through the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So God actually uses the wicked who are condemned to show his power. So even the wicked who are condemned glorify God. So all of us have a part that we play in God's plan of redemption, even the wicked, the Bible says. Roman or Proverbs 16, excuse me, says God has created all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Even the wicked, God, the Bible says, has created for himself. Doesn't mean he wanted them to be wicked, but it means he, in their choice for wickedness, created them into what would glorify his name in the end. So, therefore, when Jesus is saying, no man can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father, he's saying the Father knew from the, before the foundation of the world who would choose, and he wrote those names in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, because God knows who will choose and who will not, he can grant salvation or soften, soften the hearts of those that he knows will end up being saved. But those who will not end up being saved, it's not granted to them. So that's why we have to use discernment, but also be obedient to preaching the gospel to every creature because what makes the condemnation of the unjust just is the fact that they heard the gospel and chose to reject it. So we're supposed to preach the gospel to everyone regardless of the decision that they make. But we have to understand that we don't save anyone. Only God does that. You can't convert anyone. They have to be drawn by the Father. So, yes. Of course. Does what I just said apply to the people in this room? Could you clarify your question? Well, if there, was, if there was somebody in here who has already made the decision to reject the truth, then yes, but I would hope that there's nobody in this room that's doing that. But, you know, I've, only God knows the hearts of all, you know, so. Well, the Bible says the day we're going to find that out is when the day of judgment comes. The question was whether God lets us know that our name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. If it is, I think you will know because of the fruit, just like with anyone else. But the other people that, whose hearts we don't know like God does, for them we'll know when the Day of Judgment comes, unless the fruit's obvious. Right. Stay watchful. He comes as a thief in the night. Right. Yes.
Remember that, uh, so, okay, so the question was, if you're preaching to somebody and it's evident that their hearts are hardened, should you continue preaching the gospel, or is it a one and done, move on to the next person? So number one, you might actually think God is softening someone when that's not actually happening, and you might think God is hardening somebody and that's not actually happening, or that they're hardening themselves. Because sometimes people can have a hard shell, but their heart is still there. So you can't use outward appearances to judge the condition of their heart because some people are being softened and you don't see it at all. So best case I would say is preach the gospel the same way you would to anyone else. Make the message you communicate complete, share with them the whole truth, the whole counsel of God. Once you do that and they reject it, you can move on, but it's supposed to be the same for everyone as far as our actions go in that what we communicate to them should not change because we think that their outward appearance makes them le less worthy of what we're preaching. Does that make sense? Be obedient, right? Yes. Yeah, if you, right. If God sends you back to that person, you're like, oh, they're not going to listen to me. You don't know that. You don't know that. Dolores, yes. Right, 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 exactly, yeah, yeah, so the question was, Jesus said there's going to be many who come to him and say, Lord, did we not do many signs and wonders in your name and cast out demons in your name? And he said, I never knew you, you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So that's people that we would think are softened, people that we think have the fruit. But notice the fruit of the Spirit Jesus, or Paul never said was miracles. He said, love, joy, peace long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. All those things are the fruit of the Spirit. Miracles can come through faith, but a person can have faith, but not have love. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 13. If you have faith to move mountains, but have not love, it profits you nothing. So God has made faith for signs and wonders so available that you can be a lawless, wicked person, just like Balaam, for example, who is an Old Testament prophet, and perform signs and wonders and not actually know Christ. So what that means is that when we're looking at a person or a ministry and we say, oh, there's miracles happening, so that's fruit. Not actually true. Fruit is all the fruit of the Spirit, not just signs and wonders. In fact, again, signs and wonders are not even actually mentioned as an essential indicator of whether a person is saved or not. Apollos. Uh, what about Apollos? We might be thinking of a different name. Are you talking about the... Uh, uh, oh, sure, yeah. So Ap Apollos was preaching the same gospel, but... You'd have to pull up the scripture, because as far as I'm... Oh, you're thinking of Acts 19. That's... Okay. So, Apollos was preaching the gospel. He did have the Holy Spirit. But before, when he first started, he was corrected by Aquila and Priscilla. So, when he first started, he was not preaching it fully accurate. 
But then he was corrected, and then it was accurate. He was doing what was Right, right, yeah. So um, earlier you said you made a, a reference to Hebrews 1, where we're predestined. Sure. Yes. Many are called. Few are chosen. Yeah. Yeah. So the question was, can we have our names blotted out of the book of life, which means they're written before the foundation of the world and then erased? And so he mentioned the Bible saying, "Many are called, few are chosen." Many are called is a reference to that. Lots and lots and lots and lots of people are called to the gospel, but out of the ones that are called, there's few that actually are chosen, which is about the election or predestination of God. So the Bible actually does say in Revelation, Jesus' words, he said in paraphrase that if we're faithful, we will not have our names blotted out of the book of life. And that's mentioned once there, I believe that's Revelation 2, could be wrong about that, but then there's a couple other references to that in the book of Revelation. So if you just Google it, you'll find a few verses. It is possible for somebody's name to be in the book of life and then to be erased. One more question, yeah. Sure. Sure. There's a verse in Revelation that says, um, the, the, okay, so the question was whether everyone's name is in the book of life, but then names are blotted out. And scripture says that names are written from the foundation of the world. And then it says in Revelation, any name that was not found in the Lamb's book of life uh, was cast into the, the person whose name was not found was cast into the lake of fire. So it's not a super huge issue. I think it's possible, yes, that everyone who was called, their names were originally written and then blotted out. I think it's also possible that their names weren't written. Either way, God is just because he has knowledge that we don't. So, yeah. Potential? Yes. Sure, that would seem to be consistent with that, yeah. That's a great question. Again, it's, it's not explicitly written in Scripture, so we don't know for sure. But I would say that if, like I said earlier, if God were to have their name never written from the beginning, or if it were to be removed later, in either case, it's based on what God knows. So... Sure. So then maybe some names are never written, and maybe some names are added later. Yeah, so we don't know. Yeah, but we have to move on just for the sake of making sure we stay on the right track here. But good questions. Okay, so 
we move on here, like I mentioned, Luke 13, 24 says that there are many who will seek to enter and will not be able. That Greek word for able means to have the force or strength to do so. So that means there's some people who want to actually be saved, but when it comes to crossing that threshold of repentance, they don't have the strength to do so. So that actually is going to happen for many, Jesus said. Another case is the Bible says that in James 2.19, that demons believe that there is one God and they tremble. And so he says, you're not special if you believe in one God. The Bible also says that demons acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. So if you believe that there's one God and that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you believe the same thing as demons do. So, big whoop. <laughs> Doesn't, there's no difference between you and a demon if you stay your whole life in acknowledging one God and that Jesus is the Christ. Luke 4, verse 41. There's a lot of them, but the one I have written is Luke 4, verse 41. That's the most explicit one. So you guys can write that down. Then James 2, 19 was the first one. Okay. So then, let's just address what belief is for then. So the, a verse that God gave me for this when I was praying about it was John chapter 1, verse 12. Or 11, verse 11 starts by saying, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Verse 12 says, But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, verse 13 says, who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So if you go to the beginning of verse 12, everyone who receives Jesus, that means to accept appropriate, you take for yourself. So when a person says, I believe Jesus is the son of God, they're, they're receiving, right? Then it says he gave them the right. The, the better translation of this verse is KJV, King James Version, that translated as to as many as received him to them, he gave the power to become children of God. That's a better Greek word. It's the Greek word dunamis. What it means is that when you receive Christ, it doesn't automatically make you a child of God. What it does is it gives you the power to become a child of God. So when you have a person say, or you say you pray with them and they receive Christ, right? Sinner's prayer. And we say, congratulations, you're a child of God. Because receiving Christ gives you the power to become a child of, child of God. But it doesn't automatically make you one if you have the right profession. Because receiving Christ is the platform. It's the open door that says, okay, you believe the message. Now do something about it. And once that threshold is crossed, that repentance, once a person steps into repentance, that is when they can become a child of God. So becoming a child of God, the Bible says, is about being born again, right? So we're going to talk about being born again because Romans 10, 9, and 10 and John 3 are often using connection. So we'll, we'll, we'll preach this. Like, it's interesting how this happens. It's, it's very sly uh, hermeneutics, I will say, the science of interpreting scripture because uh, John 3 says, no man can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. And then we'll tell that to somebody and they'll say, oh, how do I be born again? And we'll say, well, Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth and that whole thing. And we'll connect confession with being born again. When if you actually look at the verses that talk about being born again, it mentions nothing of your confession. So unfortunately, that is a wrong way of understanding what being born again actually means. Because what's, what's the problem is that we will 
imagine, and rightly so, we'll imagine somebody being born again like the conception of a child. There's a moment when it happens, and it's the, the child's conceived, and boom, you now have a, a human being that's going to be born into the world or that has now it now exists that didn't before. And so we'll we'll take the sinner's prayer and make that the conception moment. We'll think that that's like the moment when a person is conceived as a child of God. But the Bible doesn't attach that moment to a person's profession. What it tells us is that we may not actually know when that moment was. And then the problem is that we'll take credit for somebody saying, praying the sinner's prayer and we'll say like, I, like Paul said, begot somebody into the faith. When we sow in water, God gives the increase. It was never you, right? It's God's seed and he conceives and he brings forth his children. So it's not about a moment when you pray a sinner's prayer with somebody. So if you look at scripture, first we're just going to go through, there's, there's three things. This is all in the, in uh, the epistle of first John that talks about this. So first John five, one, this is still included, but let's not single it out. First John five, one that says that anyone who believes that Jesus Christ is the son of God is born of him. That's not a standalone verse. That simply means everyone who is, or everyone who does, or excuse me, everyone who is born of God, yes, they will believe that Jesus is the Christ. So in other words, you're never going to see a person born of God who doesn't believe that. Somebody who's born again is going to believe that, but it's not standalone, right? That's included. Next is 1 John 4, verse 7. 1 John 4, verse 7. If we get that up on the screen, that would be great. That talks about love. Everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is, oh, no, that's 1 John 5, 1. Okay, 1 John 4, 7, whenever, there we go, okay. Let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. How do you know someone's born again? Yes, they believe and there's love. Yes. Sure. Just biblically define love, basically. Sure. I would say 1 Corinthians 13. If you want to know what love is biblically, read that. Because that talks about things that a lot of people are not willing to do. Like, for example, the Bible says, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love, Jesus said, includes rebuke and chastening. People who are willing to speak and stand for the truth is a demonstration of love biblically, but according to the world, that's not the case, right? Yes. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Yeah. So the question was, there's a lot of people in the world who are loving by the world's definition, but that doesn't necessarily make them a child of God. So the answer was about, you have to define love biblically because the love that it's talking about is not the world's kind of love, but God's kind of love. So you need to know what God's kind of love is in order to know whether a person is loving or not. So that's why I mentioned 1 Corinthians 13. Yes. Agape love, right. Yep. Laying down your life. Mm -hmm. For your enemies. Right. Yep. So that kind of love. Exactly. Not a feeling. Right. Yep. So love is a sign of being born of God. Last one also in 1 John. It's chapter 2, verse 29. 1 John 2, verse 29. We could get that one up on the screen too. That would be awesome. This one talks about a practice of righteousness. 
1 John 2, verse 29, it says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. This is a really, really powerful verse. And the reason why is that if he starts with, if you know that he, God, is righteous. So he establishes what God's character is, right? So if you believe that God is righteous and that God has a son or a daughter who has the same DNA as his father, his son or daughter would also be righteous. So when a person says, oh, I believe that God is righteous, but, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven and a sinner saved by grace. And there's no conviction for righteousness. They're actually affirming that they're not born of God. Because if you are, you would have his same nature. So, therefore, choosing righteousness is not a matter of your willpower. It's a matter of the outworking of the DNA of Christ himself in you. So, I would live in righteousness. It's a no-brainer because it's who I am. It's my nature. It's in my DNA. I'm a new creation. I was conceived, spiritually speaking, by the Holy Spirit, and he made me his child. Therefore, righteousness is natural to me, not unnatural. That's the perspective that 1 John 2.29 is trying to impart to us. So that's why he says, if you know that he's righteous, everyone who's born of God will practice righteousness period. So how do you know that someone's born again? What are the three things? Put it out. Believe, love one another, practice righteousness. So if you're going to explain to somebody, hey, like it's a great question. You can ask somebody, hey, are you born again? Do you know what that means? And they'll be like, oh, I, I don't know. What does that mean? Don't use Romans 10, 9 and 10. Say, hey, the Bible says if you're born of God, which means you're saved, you love one another like the Bible says to. You'll practice righteousness and you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ. Those three things is what being born again means. Amen? Okay. You know, when people call you righteous, you're just righteous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks. <yeah. laughs> okay. So, I'm just going to give a summary here before we get into the final point, before we finish up. So I mentioned this last Sunday, the first thing that Jesus and the apostles called people to do was repent and turn to God. So if you guys want to write down, a, again, we'll have a printout in a couple weeks, but just for the time being, if you want to write this down, this would be really good. There's three points for this. How does a person end up a child of God? Repent and turn to God. That's number one. Why? To escape the judgment of his coming kingdom. That's point number one. That always has to be the first step. Number two, believe and be baptized. Acts 2.38 talks about this. Repent first, then be baptized in the name of Jesus, right? So believe and be baptized. That's to wash away sin, receive forgiveness or remission of sins, and you receive the power to do the will of God. That's the purpose of baptism, to fill you with or indwell you with his spirit so you can walk out his will. Repent and turn to God and turn to God to escape judgment. Believe and be baptized to wash away sin and be empowered to do God's will. Number three, follow and obey Christ. This is the discipleship portion. That is, the, to, is to work out your saving faith 
and endure as a citizen of God's kingdom to the end. I'll go over them again. Repent and turn to God to escape the judgment of his coming kingdom. Good? Okay, that's number one. Number two, believe and be baptized to wash away your sins, receive forgiveness, and power to do the will of God. Again, believe and be baptized to wash away your sin, receive forgiveness, and power to do the will of God. Good there? Okay. Number three, follow and obey Christ. Discipleship, you could put in parentheses if you'd like. To work out your saving faith, the outworking of your faith, if you will. And endure as a citizen of God's kingdom to the end. Endure as a citizen of God's kingdom to the end. The way that you will know, this third point is critically important. The following and obeying Christ. The reason why is because if the repentance, faith, and baptism are genuine, following and obeying Christ always comes next. Always. So that's why Jesus was so serious about people following him. And that's why, like I mentioned last week, the first thing that he says after he tells people to repent and believe is to follow him. Because if you truly have repented and if you truly believe, you will follow him. If a person does not follow Jesus, they're not being a student of him. They're not abiding in the word. They're not growing to be more like him intentionally. That is the fruit of a genuine faith and repentance. What this means is that any gospel that a person knows that says all you need to do is believe is sending more people to hell. It's true. On a fast track, yeah. How does the Bible describe hell? That is a great question. Great question. It's not, not fun. <laughs> Everlasting torment, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the Bible says hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, which means demons. So hell was originally created for demons. So I don't know about you, just the prospect of being put where demons are imprisoned just does not. Does not sound fun. <laughs> if you've had any interaction with demons before, you know it's, it's not fun. Okay, so that's number one. <laughs> number two, the Bible, Jesus described the everlasting punishment as weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the worm that does not die and the fire that is not quenched. Those were Jesus' words. So weeping and gnashing of teeth basically means unimaginable regret and anger. Or indignation, which basically means everyone who goes to hell has more regret for the decisions that they've made than they ever have had in their life, but inescapable. There's no solution. And the wrath is the anger that is all being vented over probably what the, the punishment that they're experiencing. So the wrath and the regret. 
in combo. Then the, the, uh, that's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the worm that not, does not die and the fire that is not quenched. That is basically, I would say, representative of an everlasting consumption of life through maggots and flames. So when something dies and there's maggots, it's decay. So hell is everlasting decay. That's the, the worms part. Then there's the fire. Fire consumes, cleanses, and purifies. So that means your sin is basically purified through everlasting fire. Exactly. burn forever. That's why the gospel is really great because, <laughs> because you receive when you're baptized the Holy Spirit and fire. And I was just, we, Jacob and I were just talking about this actually. There's a verse that, where Jesus said, everyone will be seasoned with fire or salted with fire. Everyone. For the believer, the fire that you receive is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that cleanses the sin out of your life. For the person who's not a believer, you are darkness, you are sin, you are a child of wrath, you are a child of the devil. Therefore, because you are sin, you are thrown into the fire. So, I don't know yeah. if it's still online, but Bill Weiss, 23 minutes in hell is a good thing to watch. He was there for 23 minutes and they explained quite clearly what it's like. Yeah. Yeah. So, what this means, therefore, is that if we're going to preach a complete gospel to somebody, you have to talk about the grace of God, yes, but you also need to talk about hell. You need to talk about judgment and wrath. Because the gospel is intended like here. I'll explain it this way. When the gospel is presented by Jesus and the apostles, they, there's two sides to this, two sides of the coin, the, both the repentance to escape wrath and then the benefits or blessings or the rewards of accepting the gospel. And in summary, when you're preaching the gospel, we're to communicate that the benefits of choosing this way, forgiveness of sins and new life, we talked about that, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which includes miracles and then, you know, the, the fire to cleanse sin out of your life. You get to know God. There's freedom from the power of the devil and habitual sin and eternal life, heavenly inheritance and a physical resurrection. These are what the Bible says is actually what you receive as a result of accepting and obeying the gospel. So we need to explain those benefits to people. Then the consequences of rejecting this way is you get to continue in your own slavery to sin and death for the rest of your earthly life. Then that bondage is intensified when you die and it results in eternal tribulation, anguish, destruction, fire, which is ultimately the wrath of God. So it's important to mention the wrath of God, and here's why. Most people, when you ask them, do you know that Jesus died for you? And they'll say yes, and you ask them, what did he die for? And most people will say, oh, he died for my sins, implying he died to deliver me from my sins. But then people will think, okay, well, I believe that, and I'm still living the same life, so why am I still struggling with sin, or why, am, why is it still... This, why is it still the same bondage in my life? It's actually because of a belief 
that this is just about you being saved from you, but it's not about you being saved from you. That's a part of it, tiny part of it. What you're ultimately being saved from is actually God, but the wrath of God. So you need God to be saved in terms of his goodness, his love, his grace, eternal life, all that. But what you suffer if you reject the gospel is still God in terms of his wrath. Justice, right. That is what the punishment is. So people so focus on themselves, they don't see the torment is actually the wrath of God. And so the problem is that people think, oh, God is just so loving and they don't see God as a problem as far as his wrath is concerned. But as soon as people wake up to the reality that, no, it's actually the wrath of God that's the problem here, they realize God is not looking down on me just with his love. It's also with this plea for justice that requires I be condemned if I don't get right with God. So people need to see both the grace of God and the wrath of God in order to motivate both faith and repentance. So this needs to be communicated in balance. So like I said, we're going to have a printout. What this printout is going to be is basically a, a four by nine, basically like a large bookmark type thing, cardstock. One side is going to have the three points that I had you guys write down, which was repent and turn to God, believe and be baptized, follow and obey Christ with a short sentence following it. The other side has a broken down explanation of those three points with bullet points that give you all the scriptures and reasons for why those things are true. These are not meant to be like tracks that you hand out to people. It's not the point of this. This is about you. You can put on your fridge, in your car, in your Bible, wherever you go, so that if you encounter somebody, this can help you learn how to share the gospel. That's what these are for. So there, again, it'll probably be a couple weeks before we have them all here, but that's coming up. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So last point before we finish up with this teaching here. This is becoming increasingly more important the closer we get to the end. Can you hold that for a moment? Sure. So it's you, you'll see it. You're see, well, we're seeing this more and more lately, especially. But one thing that I have noticed and I'm sure you guys have, at least many of you have is that there's starting to be more people who believe in Jesus, but who do not believe in the end times or the second coming or all those things. There's a lot of people who believe that those are either allegorical or symbolic and that it's not actually going to happen physically. They think it's some kind of spiritual ascent. How many of you guys by show of hands have heard that kind of theology before? Okay. Okay, so not extremely common in this room, but it actually is very common out in the world. There's, there's more and more people that are actually denying that the end is going to come. And in fact, Peter warned us, 2 Peter 3, he said, scoffers will come in the last days denying his coming and their, their claim is going to be all things continue as they did from the beginning of creation. In other words, the world's going to turn the same way it always has. Where's the promise of his coming? That, that is the mockery right there. And Peter said, be warned, do not listen to that. The reason why it's such a warning is Revelation says, this is another kind of scary verse, Revelation 22, I think it's like verse 19 around there somewhere. Jesus said, or Revelation says, anyone who takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will add to him the plagues that are written therein. 
In other words, if you take away from the word of God, the reality of the end and the second coming, you will have the plagues that come with the end added to you. That believer or unbeliever, if you do not believe the end is coming and if you do not believe Jesus is going to return, it's a very, 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 very dangerous place to be in. The end is coming. And when it does, there is going to be a lot of death. And there's going to be a pull both to God and away from God because people are either going to cry out to him for his help or they won't repent and will reject him. So we need to draw a line in the sand for ourselves right now, as soon as possible. The present time is always the best, right? That we will either be a part of his kingdom or not. And that's what we plead with. Uh, this is how we plead with people when we preach the gospel. Be right with God. That's the thing. Which one? Oh, Second uh, Peter 3. Yeah. That scoffers will come in the last days, that one? Yeah. Second Peter 3. What was your... I was just going to say, so... Yep. So, yep. so they're going to have to deal with God. They're going to ignore him now. They're going to meet up with him later. They're going to have a bad time. Yep. 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 Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have a question? Yeah. Yeah, there's actually a parable where Jesus specifically addressed that. And I'm going to read it to you guys. So the question was, there's a lot of people who will claim, well, the end is, you know, way out in the future anyway. So it's not like we have to live like it's going to happen tomorrow or we don't have to be too scared about it. We can just kind of like live our normal life type thing. Right. So I'm going to read a parable where Jesus explained this. This is in Luke chapter 12. And it's going to start in 42. Luke 12, verse 42, starting there, says, The Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them, that's the other servants, their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes, watching, being faithful. That's what this is talking about. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. 
But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So, anybody who says in his heart, oh, the master's delaying is coming. He will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. <laughs> the end. Yep. Yep. So the attitude of, oh, it's, it's going to be weighed on the future. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. You know, we're actually told to live like it could happen any day. And that's what Paul was teaching 2000 years ago. He's still, guys, the Lord is at hand. Why? Because if you don't know the hour at which he's coming, the only solution is to always be ready. But if God were to tell you, oh, I'm going to come in the year 2052 and the month of August, and you'd be like, oh, well, I'll just wait until maybe July of 2052, and then I'll, then I'll get ready. You know, His whole point of not telling us when that day is going to come is so that we'd always be ready. Yeah. Oil in the lamps, right? Yeah, that's Matthew 24. Matthew 24, yeah. You won't know the day or the hour, but you'll know the time and the season. So you won't know the specifics, but you will know the season. And I think we're in the season. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Holy conduct and godliness. This is the manner you should live in, right? Just like Second Peter says. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Any last questions before we finish up here? Matthew 25. Yeah. 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 Be ready always. Okay. No more questions. Okay. Is this clear to everyone? Like when I went through the three points, does that all make sense? Okay, over here. Is this coming from someone else? Sure. Okay. So the question was, what difference does it make? What does it matter? If following God isn't enough and your name could be added if it could stay or if it could be blotted out or erased how would or if we wouldn't be able to know then what confidence can we have in what we do or the choices that we make <laughs> yeah I, I would say that's true it's part of the part of the fear but before i speak to that does anyone else want to yes
sure. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. So after thinking about it, here's what my answer will be. In John chapter 10, I'll just give scripture. Jesus said, All whom the Father has given to me will come to me. And I grant them everlasting life and nothing will snatch them out of my hand. He was talking about his, his sheep. All whom the Father has granted me will come to me. Will. It's a promise. And nothing will snatch them out of my hand. That's what Jesus said. So, if it's been granted, and I think you will know if it has because of the fruit that's in your life, that you have come to Jesus, nothing will be able to snatch you out of his hand. The godly fear part of this is about understanding that you could be like somebody in Matthew 7, or not, not could be, there are some who are like those people in Matthew 7 that says they would do many signs and wonders and cast out demons, but Christ never knew them. Which tells you, again, the fruit is not the grandeur of the miracles and that kind of thing. The fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. So if the fruit of the Spirit is in your life, you belong to Jesus. And the Bible says the Spirit who is in you bears witness, crying out, Abba, Father, that you are his child. So the, if the Holy Spirit is in you, which would indicate that you're born again, you, it, the Bible says you have the witness in yourself, First John 5 says. So if you are saved, you will know. And if you are saved, nothing will snatch you out of his hand. The Bible says, then Colossians 1, this is the conclusive scripture. It says, you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you to God, holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight, if you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which means your job once you are saved is to continue in the faith and be grounded in it if you continue and you endure and you're grounded you will remain and you have the assurance that jesus says i will make sure nothing snatches you away from me this doesn't mean you don't have to do anything about it you still have a responsibility but you can have assurance for whether you're saved or, or not. So this is not meant to be a worrisome thing. You can have absolute confidence that you are saved. And it's because you have that confidence that you have the motivation to live in it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the thing. When you have that confidence, you just know, hey, nothing, nothing can take me down. You just know it. You, when, you, when you come to that place of confidence, you have witness in yourself. You just know that it's there. And that's the kind of groundedness we're, just, we're supposed to have. Because one of the lies that the enemy uses is to try to get people to question their salvation, even when they're trying to work really hard. And so they'll think, man, if I just can't know that I'm saved anyway, I might as well just live however I want. And I might as well just give up on righteousness and just continue in sin. The devil wants you to think that way. He wants to rob you of that confidence so that you give up on seeking God, but you can have assurance. You seek, call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says you shall be saved if this is something you want and you pursue it and you repent and turn to God, believe and be baptized and follow and obey Christ. And if that's the purpose that, that you set yourself to, then nothing will snatch you out of his hand. Yes. Right, right. So if you stray away, like, like you're saying like you get into sin again after you've been saved and baptized, right? Yeah. Do you have to be baptized again? Yeah. That's the question. So here's first John, again, here's what it says. If you practice righteousness, you know that you're born of him, which means the baptism is genuine. If you practice sin, first John says you're of the devil. So there's a difference between the practice of your life and then having, making a mistake or a struggle or straying, let's say. So if you have a person who, let's say, there's an old habit, they fall back into it for a little while, and their, their practice or their habit is righteousness, which means if you look across the board at their life, their heart's desire and their, what they're striving for is righteousness, and they're wrestling with the sin with the intent to be free from it. That is not somebody who is practicing sin, in which case the baptism is real. Practicing sin is when sin is your habit, is your choice, is the regularity of your life. Like that's what you do with your life. That would be more the, that's where I would question somebody's faith. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Right. Yeah. Having the delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. Right. Yeah. That's another good chapter. Like Romans seven, especially the last few verses is really good because it talks about that. If in your mind and your heart, you delight in God's word and that's what you want and you're still struggling with sin. That's not what first John's talking about when it's talking about practicing sin. What it's talking about is when you're choosing sin and that's the life you set yourself on. A person who's struggling, but they want to walk in righteousness, simply lacks the understanding to have the power 
to walk free from that sin. And that's why teaching is so important. That's why Bible study is so important because it equips you with the, the know-how and the power to be able to stay free from sin. But it, I can definitely assure you guys that the, the more that you continue to repent, in other words, the more that you stay sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and what he asks you to do, the easier it will be for any and all sin. Which basically means that if God's asking you to do something, you think, well, I mean, why do I have to do that? Like, that just seems kind of extreme. But if you're obedient and you honor that, he will be protecting you from things that you just don't see. You know? Because he knows what's in your future. He knows what's in your heart. And he knows what's going to happen. So if you stay sensitive and you, and you obey, he'll, he'll protect you. He'll keep you from the evil one. He promises that. So, okay. Any final comments or questions? Good. Do you have one? That's, a di that's different. Yeah, that's different. That's another message. Yeah. Won't get into that now. Okay. All right. So final encouragement. I would just tell you guys that now that you know this, think about people in your life who don't know this that you can share it with. Because I'm sure we all know somebody. All of us could at least think of one person. And I would encourage you as a challenge to find a person that you know that is already a professing believer but you know does not understand this, what was explained today. And if you're in the position where you're not sure, or maybe you've been that professing believer, but you haven't understood this up to this point, then it's about working on it for yourself. In other words, hey, believe this for yourself. Choose this for yourself. Repent, right? But if you have repented, you have been baptized, and you do believe, think about people you can share this with, because this is, this is a heaven and hell issue. There are people going to hell every day, and we're supposed to be so aware of that that we're passionate about sharing the truth with people. What, what this has woken me up to recently, I mentioned, alluded, this, alluded to this briefly, is just that the, my whole life, the people that I thought were saved were not. And that kind of freaks me out. And it makes me want to share with them. And this, this has caused... I never considered myself, you know, an evangelist by any means, but that's not what I've been called to do. But I've been more and more and more compelled to share the gospel with people just as a result of this simple understanding. Because now every time I talk to somebody and say, hey, I mean, are you a believer? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. And I'm just like, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it really doesn't, you know. And most people in this nation will say that they believe that, you know. So be aware of this. Let it instill godly fear in you. Let it motivate you. Let it drive you to preach the gospel. Because that's why we're alive until the kingdom comes. Amen? Amen.